We are going to start Nehemiah tonight. Last week we finished the book of Ezra, 10 chapters. This week we're going to pick up, pick up the sequel. This is the sequel to the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. Before we get rolling into this actual content, I want to look at some introductory matters first. I've got notes I brought. Did those make it out anywhere? Oh, they're up here. Originally, uh, the introduction, first of all, let's talk about the unity of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were not two books. They were one book uh, originally in the, in the uh, Septuagint called the LXX Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. They were one book. And the same content, if you're wondering, is that the same content we have now in both books? Yes, same content we have now, but just one book, considered one book. wasn't until the thir- third century that origin a kind of bizarre church father in many ways, in other ways very good. He divided the books into two, Ezra and Nehemiah. And then Jerome comes along in the 4th century and translates what we call the Latin Vulgate. The Catholics used that Bible for years, and they had it into two books in that translation as well. And I think both in the Septuagint and also in the Latin Vulgate, the second book uh, was not called Nehemiah. It was called the second, it was called the second Ezra. First and second Ezra. So you can see the point I'm making here is there's a close association between these two books. We need to keep that in mind. And so Nehemiah is a continuing story in a very real sense. All right, if you look at your notes, you'll see B author. Is that what B says? Good. Sometimes my notes and yours end up being completely different. I don't know why. Uh, But both Jewish and Christian tradition refer to Ezra as the author of both books. That's due to several factors. For one, they were originally one book, and so people think, well, if it's one book, then Ezra must have written both those books. Ezra, by the way, is thought to have written the Chronicles. And there's similarities in the, in the ending of Second Chronicles, as we showed you in Ezra chapter 1. This, the last few verses of Second Chronicles are the exact same verses at the beginning of Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and so on. So some people think, well, Ezra was the same guy who wrote both books for that reason. And then, secondly, there are themes in both Ezra and Nehemiah that are similar, like the hand of the Lord being upon a person. Ezra says, the hand of the Lord is upon me. Nehemiah can say the same thing in his book. Uh, There are other similarities, too. The sovereignty of God is really strong in both books, for example. And then, uh, also, Ezra had access to administrative documents from Persia. Ezra was a scribe. Ezra worked for the Persian government. Ezra had access to administrative documents from Persia that are used in both uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so he's the best candidate, it is thought, for authorship of both books. Now, others people think, and I I couldn't help but think this as I read Nehemiah, other people think Nehemiah wrote Nehemiah. And the reason for that is because, just like in Ezra, remember we talked about the Ezra memoirs in chapter 7, at the end of the last couple of verses in chapter 7, all the way through chapter 9, Ezra starts saying, I, we, our, me, my. Talking like that, they they call that the Ezra memoirs. Just like that, and also in Nehemiah, we have a lot of sections written in the first person by by Nehemiah. He does that. Look at, uh, that's called the the Nehemiah memoirs, uh, for example. It's in chapter 1 through chapter 7, verse 5. I have that in your notes. Some in chapter 12, some in chapter 13. And so, you know, if Ezra wrote the book, he used the, the memoirs of Nehemiah as part of that writing and also other material. By the way, we know ultimately who wrote, who put this book together? 
God did, right? The Word of God is inspired. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Profitable, right? But here's the thing. In inspiration, you have to keep in mind, it doesn't mean that a guy can't compile materials together to put a book together. It doesn't mean that that's excluded. There's no, it doesn't say anywhere this is how inspiration was carried out exactly. God can still inspire his word and have a guy who compiles things together, still the inspired word of God. But at the end of the day, we don't know who the human author was of Nehemiah or Ezra for sure because it does not say. We can guess. Neither do we have an exact date for the writing of Nehemiah, but in all likelihood, not beyond 400 B.C. Now, we're getting at the end of the, at the Old Testament writings at that point, like Malachi. And so, and then you have 400 silent years, and then you have the New Testament coming on the scene. All right, number C, the purpose of the book, or I should say maybe the structure of the book. It's the same structure as Ezra. Just like in Ezra, you have the beginning section. They're rebuilding what? What are they rebuilding in Ezra? The temple. In Nehemiah, they're rebuilding something else. The wall of Jerusalem. At the end of the second half of Ezra, you have a reformation, a spiritual reformation going on. And at the end of Nehemiah, you have a similar spiritual reformation going on. So it's the continuing story of God's people coming back to the land, being reestablished in the land after the Babylonian captivity. D, the time. The time that we're in. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. Now when we ended the book of Ezra, we were in the year 458 B.C. I say these dates, and I know as I say them, flying through one ear and out the other, for the most part, right? Nobody really cares about dates in history. Uh, Most people despise dates in history. I don't. I think they're very important. 458 B.C. was when we ended the book of Ezra, and we're now moving on. To the month Kislev, which is partially November, partially December, it's the in the Jewish calendar. It's the twentieth year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. That's the same king Ezra served under. And now we're in the year four forty-five BC. Four forty-five BC. Ezra, I mean Ezra, Artaxerxes reigned from four sixty-five BC to four twenty-four BC. The opening verses of Nehemiah put us in four forty-five BC. That is twelve to 13 years after the book of Ezra closes. So we haven't had that much time elapse after Ezra closes, 12, 13 years now. We begin Nehemiah, and uh, we start all, we started in 445 B.C. What about the place? Where are they? Verse 1, uh, Nehemiah says, I was in Susa, the capital. Um, that is the, basically there were two places where the Persian kings like to hang out. In the summertime, they like to go to a place called Ekbatana, in Persia, because that was their summer home. It was cooler there, kind of like snowbirds. And, and then in the wintertime, the winter residence for the Persian kings was Susa, the capital, place where they stayed in the winter, now modern-day Iran today. What about the main character? Obviously, Nehemiah, it says here. His name means the, the Lord comforts. And he will be a comfort to his people, not to everybody. To some people, he's going to be uh, rather difficult. We'll see that later on. But the Lord comforts it. In order to have a better understanding of him, turn to the last verse of chapter 1, verse 11. We need to know this about him. <clears throat> the last phrase in, chapter, in verse 11, chapter 1, Nehemiah says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer. That's what we're told his profession was. That was his profession. He was a cupbearer. What do you do for a living? 
I'm a cupbearer. Well, that doesn't sound very impressive on the surface. Now, if he said I was a scribe like Ezra, that's very, Ezra, that was a very impressive resume in Ezra chapter 7. Ezra, the scribe of the Lord, the skilled scribe in the law of Moses, the guy who was very, uh, very good at what he did and it made a big deal out of all that. And we come to this book now, and he's, we, 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 this guy's a cupbearer. You know, if he was an advisor to the king, that, that would impress us. If he was the treasurer, that would impress us. But a cupbearer, what is that? Kind of like a human cup holder? What does this guy do? Well, the truth is a cupbearer is an extremely important position in the Persian government or any other kind of government where there was a king in the ancient Near East. It, it was a position of honor and influence in the king's court. You think that doesn't sound like a very much of a position of honor, but it was. In fact, there's artwork from Persia that shows that a cupbearer is right next to the crown prince. The crown prince is heir to the throne. He's right next to the crown prince and attending to the king. He is in a very important position. So Nehemiah is in a very strategic position at this point, which tells us something of the providential leadership of God. Once again, that God has Ezra in his position in the Persian government, and now he's got Nehemiah in this position in the Persian government. The hand of God is is obvious in this. Now, as as a cupbearer, his main job was to... Am I sounding okay? Coming across okay? Ben, or is this... Okay. His main job was to first taste the wine served to the king in the king's presence. In other words, he couldn't stand off to the side and drink some wine and say, yeah, I think it's fine. The king's like, no, it's not fine. I want to see you drink it in my presence here. So he would drink the king. Now, the Persians had a long history of winemaking, a big deal to them. And so uh, the cupbearer was to ensure that the king had wine that had not been poisoned. He's the first to drink it. If it was poison, guess who dies first? Nehemiah does, not the, not the king, not the king Artaxerxes. The ancient kings had to worry about this business of having their wine poisoned because it was a very popular way for assassins to come in and kill the king, poison the wine. Uh, in fact, a historian by the, by the name of Xenophon talks about how the cupbearers did their job. They would, first of all, get a ladle uh, and dip some of the wine out, pour it in their left hand, and then they would, they would swallow it. If the cupbearer was still alive after drinking this, king's okay. There's no fear. He doesn't have to worry about anything. However, if uh, Nehemiah died, then the king Artaxerxes better run an ad in the Persian times because we need a new cupbearer here. Uh, there was a man, in fact, by the name of Bogoaz. You're required to memorize that name. Bogoaz, who tried to poison the last king of Persia, Darius III. Tried to poison him, but... That Darius was able to intercept that and find out about it in advance. And when he did find out, he had Bogoaz arrested and he made him drink his own poison and killed him. So the job of a cupbearer was a matter of life and death to the king. Very important job. And do you think the king could entrust just anyone with this job? Would you? If that was a situation and you were the king, would you entrust anyone with this job? The king had to select a man who was complete completely and totally trustworthy individual, and so we have Nehemiah. Now, that tells us volumes about the character, the trustworthiness of Nehemiah, a man the king could trust his life with. This is, this is a very important position. The king has a close relationship with the cupbearer as a result of all this, and the cupbearer has influence as a result of all this. And Artaxerxes knows I have nothing to fear with Nehemiah as my cupbearer. 
Now, now Ezra had already set the stage. And Ezra, in the book of Ezra, with his trustworthiness, he'll appear again in Nehemiah. He was already a trustworthy man. Artaxerxes knew him. He knew he was a Jew. He knew he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. They called the God of heaven. And so he knows Nehemiah is in that same vein. Now Nehemiah proves he's trustworthy to the king. And, and the king literally trusts Nehemiah with his life. Now, shouldn't it be true? Shouldn't trustworthiness mark a follower of Yahweh, a follower of Christ? Should that not be the case? Um, at least professing follower, or at least it should mark all followers. But it's not true of all followers of Christ or professing followers. That's not the case, unfortunately. You and I have probably run across this before. You know, sometimes you think you can count on a person. You know, he says he's a Christian. He says he serves Christ. He says he runs a business as a Christian. He has a Christian business. Have you heard this one? That's great. If, you're running, if you have a Christian business and you're running it as a Christian, that's great in a trustworthy manner. If you're not, that's a different story. So you get a guy to do a job. He says he's reliable, he's dependable, he's a Christian, he loves the Lord, and so on and so forth. And then you find out in time, this person isn't as advertised as I thought he was going to be. I can't count on this guy. It's the situation, I couldn't help but think of Proverbs 25, 19. That says, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. I, I don't know how many times I've thought this, man, this guy is like, this guy I'm trusting right now? <laughs> says he's a it's kind of like having a toothache. It's not even worth it. It's a miserable situation. Now, Nehemiah is not that. He is a man that can be counted on by the king, the greatest ruling emperor in the world at that time. And, uh, you know, as believers, this should be our testimony. Our testimony should be we're trustworthy. People can count on us. If we say we're going to be at somewhere at a certain time, we're there. Uh, there's, there's things that happen. I get this. Don't, don't go out and say, well, he didn't show up at 9 o'clock yesterday like he said he was. There's things that happen. But Christians should be counted on. If you say you're going to do a job, you should do it. Uh, else, you know, if we're, if we're not trustworthy with unbelievers, how are we going to expect them to take the gospel seriously? It's about our lifestyle. Well, the cupbearer will prove not only trustworthy to the king, but he's going to be instrumental in the work of God toward Israel. How will he do that? In two ways. First of all, he has a burden for God's people. In verses 2 to 4. Nehemiah has a burden for God's people. Look at chapter 1, verses, verse 2. He says he's in Susa, the capital. And he says that Hanani, one of my brothers, Nehemiah says, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Hey, what's going on down there? Remember, they're 900 miles away or so in Persia. What's going on back in Jerusalem? They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This group of Jews returns from Jerusalem, from Judah, from the remnant that is there. And Nehemiah says, what's going on? They tell him all this bad news. By the way, he calls this guy, Hananiah, my brother, uh, his brother, one of our brothers. In chapter 7, verse 2, he calls him my brother. Either he's a biological brother or he's a fellow Jew, fellow countryman. We're not totally sure. But Nehemiah had always lived in Persia. He grew up in Persia. He, that's where he lived. He didn't live in Judah. He didn't know what was going on. He'd never been there. So he asked about this situation. What's going on back in Jerusalem? He's very concerned, as you can see, 
The reply from Hananiah, things are going very badly, very badly. The gates are burned down with fire. The, the city walls burned down. People are in reproach. Reproach has to do with people who are enemies, who are casting scorn upon you, who are insulting you, who are blaming you. All this is going on. Things are not going good at all, Nehemiah. And added to the insult is injury. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Gates are burned with fire. Okay, now at first, when you read this, you think back to the Babylonian captivity. Back to 2 Chronicles or 2 Kings 25. Back to 587 B.C. You go back in time. Okay, when Babylon came in, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They broke down the walls. They burned everything with fire. Nehemiah would have known that. Everybody knew that. All the Israelites knew that. That's Israelite history. All the Jews knew this. They've been, they were acquainted with this, this information. But Nehemiah acts surprised as if he doesn't know this about Babylon. So is that what he's talking about here? Well, you may not remember, but let's go back to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra 4. There is an event earlier in the reign of Artaxerxes recorded when the Jews tried to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in the city. That was before Nehemiah's time. That actually, they, they attempted to do that. This chapter, remember Nehemiah, uh, Ezra 4, Ezra 4, we talked about the flash forward. We talked about how Ezra 4 is going uh, forward in history about 100 years to the, from Ahasuerus to Artaxerxes. And they're going forward and they're talking about all the opposition, over 100 years of opposition to, to, to Judah, talking about all that. And uh, before Artaxerxes, before Nehemiah requested from Artaxerxes, can we re- rebuild Jerusalem? Something else happened. People tried to rebuild Jerusalem. The Jews tried to do that, and it's recorded in Ezra 4. They don't have permission from Artaxerxes. So the enemies, they start building. The enemies of God's people in Ezra 4, they're very upset. Hey, what are you guys doing? They write a letter to King Artaxerxes. Do you know these guys are trying to build? Look at Ezra 4.11. Here's the letter. This is the copy of the letter which the enemies sent to Artaxerxes to King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river. And now let it be known to the king that the Jews in Judah who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the rebellious and evil city. Now, we're not talking about rebuilding the temple. We're talking about rebuilding the city right now. They're rebuilding that rebellious and evil city, Jerusalem. They're finishing the walls. They're repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if that city, Jerusalem, is rebuilt, and the walls are finished. They will not pay tribute. Now, here, here's going to get his attention now. We're talking about money now, he says. They're not going to pay you tribute. They're not going to pay you custom. They're not going to pay you taxes or tolls. It's going to damage your revenue. And we're here to warn you about this. Look at verse 16. We inform the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Well, that's a mouthful. King is not happy about this. Look at verse 21. King Artaxerxes replies to them. So now, uh, issue a decree, Artaxerxes says, to make these men stop work on the city, not the temple, the city, that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Why should the Persian kings suffer damage and possible rebellion as a result of this? Verse 23 then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shemshai, these are the guys that are the enemies of Israel, the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. Stop the rebuilding of the city. Don't do it. And then in verse 24, 
they, they, it goes back in time. We're going flashing backward now. And they stop the building of the temple. That's the next verse, okay? But we're interested in the building of the city, this illegal effort, because it had not been approved by Artaxerxes to rebuild the city. The reason Artaxerxes stopped that probably is because during that time, he had a lot of revolts to deal with. You know, he had this huge empire, a lot of countries he was ruling over, a lot of revolts here and there. He's trying to put them out, stamp them out. And he's in no mood to have another possible revolt. So he says, no, stop the war. And these guys say, these guys are rebellious. They're rebelling against you. Artaxerxes says, stop it. Stop the, and they, they stop it by force of arms. So it's reasonable to assume that what happened next was the enemies not only stopped the work, they probably destroyed the walls that had been built partially, the city that had been partially built probably destroyed that. And so Nehemiah gets word, Nehemiah 1, who probably thought that something had, that the city of Jerusalem was in better conditions than it was. I clearly thought that. Maybe it had been built better than it was. And now he finds out this news, he's devastated by it. No, Nehemiah. Things aren't good over there. They're bad. The people are in reproach. The city is burned. The gates of the city burned down with fire. The walls burned down. There's no protection. There's no protective wall around the city to protect Israel, Jerusalem from the enemies. It doesn't exist. And he's devastated. Now, the Persian kings were in favor of rebuilding the temple. We saw that in, in Ezra. And, and they were in favor of sending Ezra to reinforce the law of God. But rebuilding the city, that is a different matter until maybe Nehemiah comes on the scene. At any rate, Nehemiah is completely taken back by the news, and he stops in his tracks, verse 4, and he sits down where he is, and he is kind of like Ezra. He weeps, he mourns, he fasts and prays for many days. And so his reaction is similar to Ezra when Ezra heard the news about intermarriage, back in Ezra chapter 8 and 9. Now, he could have taken the attitude... Nehemiah could have taken this attitude. Well, you know, I'm in Persia. Jerusalem, Judah, all that's a distant memory. Now, I've never even been over there. I've got a good job with the Persian government. You know, he's got a good job. He's got good pay. He has good benefits. He has 401K, the 401K of their day. All this. He works for the king directly. He's set for life. He's got it made, right? Why worry about Judah? Why worry about Jerusalem? Why worry about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all that stuff? Why worry about all that's all in the past? The glory days of Israel are over. They're gone. You know, other Jews stayed behind when Zerubbabel made the first return in Ezra chapter 1 and 2 and 3. When they made the first return back to Judah, people, Jews stayed behind in Persia. They didn't go. Not everybody went. And then when Ezra went back to, on the second return, there were Jews that stayed behind in Persia. They didn't go either. They didn't care. So why trouble yourself about Jerusalem? Why worry about it? He could have taken that attitude. But I'll tell you why he didn't. Because Nehemiah is not a slacker. He does not have the attitude, you know, I don't care. I, it's not my problem. Like a lot of professing Christians today, I don't care about that. They would never say this. They would never voice it. Their actions speak louder than their words. He's not more concerned about his personal comfort than he is about Israel. He's very concerned about them. Because these are God's people. As he says again and again in this chapter, these are God's people. I'm concerned about them. He takes the attitude, Nehemiah does, of Psalm 137. Now, of the author of Psalm 137, Psalm 137 is about the Babylonian captivity. When the captives are in Babylon, and they say, and the captives and the Babylonians say to them, why don't you sing us one of the Lord's songs? Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they said, how can we sing 
the Lord's song in a foreign land. How can we do that? They're very upset. And in Psalm 137, verse 5 and 6, the, the captives say this. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, they're in Babylon. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. That's how they felt about it. That's how some felt about it, not everybody probably. Here's the thing. The Jews are God's covenant people. Their land is Israel. Their land is not Persia. Their land is not the city of Babylon within the Persian Empire. Their land is Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. Nehemiah knows the Lord wants his people to go back. He knows this. He knows that this is the will of God. This is what the Lord wants. Nehemiah wants what the Lord wants. Nehemiah wants to do God's will. That's what he's interested in. Nehemiah has a heart for God. He has a heart for his cause. And so therefore, with all this being the case, he's troubled, greatly troubled by what he hears. Wait a minute, this is all backwards. This is all wrong. It shouldn't be this way. Why is the city destroyed like that? Why are the Jews under persecution? People like Ezra were doing their part. They did the best they could. They, they tried to serve God. But they, Ezra's one man. Others are needed to step up. Nehemiah is clearly burdened for his people, for the, for the kingdom of God at this time. Now you say, what do the broken walls of Jerusalem and the remnant that is there have to do with me? Well, the question is, how do you respond? How do you respond when God's people are in, are in distressful situations? That's what's happening here. Nehemiah is responding to people, the people of God who are in a distressful situation. How do you respond when that happens? When you hear distressing news about other believers that are struggling with sin in their lives, when you hear about people that are discouraged, when you hear that a church is failing, we've had a couple of those we've heard about lately, when you hear about people that, you, that know God that are not serving Him faithfully, how does that strike you? Does it move you to action? Do you care about this at all, or do you not care? Well, that's their problem, not mine. I'm not going to worry about it. It should move us to action. We should be affected by that kind of news. And it should do to us what it did to Nehemiah, drive us to our knees, to pray for our fellow believers in Christ. That should be our first reaction. How was it for Jesus when he was on this planet? Well, you see it again and again in Matthew and other places. In Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, it says he felt compassion for them. Because why? They were dispirited. They were distressed because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he felt compassion for those people. Then you move on to Matthew 14. He sees a crowd, a large crowd, and it says what? He felt compassion for them. And he did something about it. He healed their sick. You go on to Matthew 15. Crowds were with him, had been with him for three days. And the and disciples said, send them away. Let them find food in the local villages. And he says this, I feel compassion for the people. And he fed them. This is the pattern of Jesus' life. He's burdened for people. He's moved to action as a result of that. That's how we should be. We should have the compassion and concern and love that Christ had for people. The love of Christ for people should constrain us. It should drive us. It should move us to act on, on their behalf. We should intercede for them. And that is the second part of this, a prayer for God's people, verses 5 to 11. A prayer for God's people. Nehemiah is clearly shaken by the news Look at these descriptive words in verse 4. When I heard the words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Just feel these, you know, this, we feel his pain. Don't we? Do we not when we read these words? 
He weeps, he mourns, he fasts, he prays. He turns to the only source of help, the Lord. He turns to the Lord. That's all. That's what Ezra did. He turned to the Lord when he received the bad news that Judah, that Israel had intermarried with foreign women who were idolaters. What does he do? He turns to the Lord. And he sought the Lord with prayer and fasting. Now, Ezra's was more of a, con- a prayer of confession that fit the need of the moment. And we can learn from his prayer. We should learn from the prayers of the Bible. But we can also learn from this prayer from Nehemiah. Let's see how we can learn from it. There's several elements in this prayer that will help us to pray in a way that would please God and would help others. Look at the elements that make up this prayer. Number one, adoration, verse 5. Adoration. Verse 5, Nehemiah begins to pray. And he said, I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah starts his prayer with praise and adoration for the Lord. He says, O Lord, God of heaven, first of all. Now, Nehemiah refers to the Lord that way several times in the book. Um, it's the same way that, you know, the Persians thought of Israel's God as the God of heaven. They call him that. Remember Artaxerxes and Ezra 7, the king Artaxerxes, he calls Ezra the scribe of the God of heaven. So he knew that. Now, although, now, although he said that, Artaxerxes said that, I doubt seriously he understood what he was saying because he's an, unbel- he's an idolater. You know, it's kind of like the, the P, you know, you see these football teams. They, before the game, what do they do? Get on their knees and pray what? The Lord's Prayer, right? As if it's some kind of magical formula. That's how our Xerxes was. He didn't know God, but he says he's the God of heaven. In the New Testament, though, Jesus is going to teach the believers, he's going to teach his disciples to pray this way. By saying this, our Father who is in heaven. That's how we should pray, he says. By saying that, that this is the God of heaven, Nehemiah recognized that God is the creator of all. He recognized that God is the Lord of all. Now, he works for a pagan a ruler. He works for a pagan boss, you know. Look, that's another thing. We work, when we work for pagan bosses, I've worked for pagan bosses out there, unsaved bosses. I didn't call them a pagan boss. Uh, I don't think he would have liked that. They would have liked that, different bosses. But, we, we, you know, the Christians have to work in this world. We have to have a testimony in the world. We're not working for people who are, you know, loving Christ out there. We have to understand who we're working with here. And Nehemiah is an employee of an idolater, an idolatrous king. You've got to deal with it. You have to work with it. You have to trust the Lord. You have to ask the Lord for his grace and go with the flow and work and serve God in that, in that capacity and do your best for the Lord. That's how it is. And so he says he's the God of heaven. And uh, uh, Nehemiah does what he prays. And the Lord said, you should pray, our Father who art in heaven. Yes, the city, Nehemiah is praying. Look, the city of Jerusalem is in ruins. Yes, it is. Nehemiah is distraught about that. But who does, does the Lord not know about this? Is the Lord unaware of the fact that Jerusalem is in ruins? He knows all things. He's very aware of it. Now, isn't it comforting to know that if things are a mess, things are a problem, you're a problem, you have problems, others have problems, other believers have problems, isn't it good to know that we can take this to the Lord in prayer? Isn't that a great thing? He knows all these things. He rules over all. He's well aware of this. All the circumstances that exist, he knows all the problems in this church. He knows all the people that are sick in this church. He knows all the people that have spiritual struggles in this church. All these things, isn't it good to know we can take these things to him in prayer? What a blessing. And so Nehemiah says, O Lord God of heaven, I recognize you already as the God who rules over all things, who created all things. And then he says, he calls him the great and awesome God. The great and awesome God. Now, 
the word awesome, used to describe everyone and everything in our society. Everybody is awesome in some sense of the word. Everything is awesome. Uh, everything we do is awesome. Um, and so we use that word just to complete our sentences. Awesome. We say that at the end of the, at the end of a, somebody tells us something. We say, "Well, that's awesome." But the word translated "awesome" in this verse is full of meaning, not just meaningless phrases become in our society. It means the one to be feared. God is the one to be. He's the one full of awe. We should all stand in awe of Him. We should be in awe of Him. He's the one and only awesome person there is in the universe. We should humble ourselves before this one who is truly awesome and worship Him. There is none like Him. There's none greater than Him. There's none to compare to Him. He's the one that we should reverence. These terms, God of heaven, the great and awesome one, are terms of majesty, the majesty of God, talking about the majesty of God. There can only be one view of God. We talk about what our view of God is in the church we have in our statement of faith. We say we have a high view of God. There's only one view of God. That's what? The high view of God. Nothing less than that. He deserves our utmost reverence. Then Nehemiah moves on and considers God to be the faithful God. Look at verse 5. It says here, uh, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, we say that we call Israel God's covenant people. That term, we say that a lot. We say that because God made a covenant with his people. He says, I'm going to be your God, Israel. You're going to be my people. And that's what I want. And that's, and that's how it's going to be. And so we call him the covenant God. Now, as far as keeping that covenant, as you read the Old Testament, what happened? Again and again, Israel fails. They fail. They, they fail to do their part in keeping the covenant. But who always succeeds in this, in this partnership? The Lord does. The Lord is always faithful in his relationship. Israel, not so much. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our spiritual condition, he remains faithful. We are fickle. We see this all the time. We're fickle. He's faithful. We're fickle. He's, we're all over the map. He's, he's consistently, he's always consistent, always perfectly consistent. The word loving kindness here, you see that again and again in the Old Testament. It has to do with the quality that honors a covenant through thick and thin. A quality that honors the covenant. Now, God made a covenant. He honored that covenant through thick and thin. Difficult times, Israel falling apart, he still honored the covenant. When Israel fell apart, he honors the covenant. When they went into captivity, when, he, when they were captured by Assyria, when they were captured by Babylon, he still is the covenant-keeping God. He never changed that at all. He never did change that. Even though he was, Israel failed him many times. Think about it. He puts up so much from us. Would you put up with... Would you put up, if you were, the, I don't want to hate to say this, if, but would you put up with the stuff he puts up with? No way. He is not like a father who deserts his children. He sticks in there. He's faithful to us. But the people here are also called to do their part. Nehemiah 1.5, listen to this again. The Lord preserves his covenant and loving kindness for who? For those who love him and keep his commandments. For those who love him and keep his commandments. This is not a one-sided covenant. It's to be reciprocal. The Lord expects Israel to love him and to keep his commandments. And that's what he said in Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Moses said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your might. Great verse. But verse 17 is also in that same chapter, Deuteronomy 6, it says this, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. You've got to keep those commandments, his testimonies, his statutes, which he has commanded to, commanded to you. Let me ask you a question. Is that asking too much? Is that asking too much? Is that just another Old Testament requirement that's you know, designed to make life difficult on the Jews? Is that what it is? No, think about this for a minute. What loftier pursuit in life is there than to love the Lord your God and do what he says? What loftier pursuit is there than that? And furthermore, this doesn't stop in the Old Testament. Doesn't Jesus say similar words in the New Testament? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A very similar statement. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Reciprocal, yes. We should reciprocate the faithfulness of God to us. Is it too much for the Lord to ask us to love him and to give him praise and adoration and obedience? I don't think so. It shouldn't be too much to ask. This is the majestic God we serve. He's the Lord God of heaven. He's the great and awesome God. He is the faithful God. Nehemiah teaches us how to begin our prayers, just like Jesus will later on. The second element in prayer we see here is intercession. Intercession, look at verse 6, the beginning. Nehemiah says, Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of... Of the sons of Israel, your servants. I'm praying on behalf, I'm praying for them. I'm praying on their behalf. He, I'm praying for them without ceasing, day and night, as he says. Now, did he not carry out his duties to the king during this time? Of course he did. But in the back of his mind and his heart, and you'll see in chapter 2, he prays in his heart, Nehemiah is thinking constantly about his people, about what's going on at that time, about the will of God at that time, about reestablishing Jerusalem. He's praying for these people constantly. You know, 500 years later, what's interesting to me is the Apostle Paul is still praying for the people of Israel. Romans 10.1, Paul tells the church in Rome, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. This is 500 years later. Nothing's changed. He's still praying for Israel. Intercession is so important that we intercede for other people. So important. If we do, if we do not intercede for others... If we don't pray for the salvation of unbelievers, if we don't pray for the sanctification of believers, who will? This is our job. Who's going to do this? All you have to do is take a look at the, at the bulletin in the prayer list. And there's about a million names in there. About a million needs in there. So many people to intercede for. And you know, we've been praying for people, like, for people in this room right now, some of them just left, that, because they had to, that we prayed for, for many different needs. I mean... I look back, I think back over the years here, this person had such a great need, that person had such a great need, we all got together, we prayed for these people. It's so important. And just as the, as the remnant was in trouble in Judah, so today. Many in trouble, many in distress, we need to pray for them. That's where we come in. A Christian is automatically an intercessor. We've got to take that seriously. The third element in prayer, confession. Look at verse 6 again. Let your ear be attentive to what I'm saying. Go to the, the rest of that verse, confessing. He says, I want to confess the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly. This reminds us of Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9 again, just like Ezra in Ezra 9. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. This is obviously, Nehemiah is very explicit in his confession. We've, just like Ezra was, 
He admits Israel's been very corrupt. <coughs> they haven't kept the commandments. They have not reciprocated to God. And then he identifies. <coughs> he identifies with the sin of Israel. Nehemiah doesn't just say, hey, the people of Israel sin. Why are such such evil sinners? He doesn't say that. He, he says, again, he says, I and my father's house of sin. It's not just them, it's I also. It's, again, the idea of corporate solidarity. He's including himself in the blame for sins. Now, <coughs> as I say that, two things are important to understand. Nehemiah was not guilty of heinous sins or idolatry like the people before the Babylonian captivity. Not guilty of that. But secondly, Nehemiah was a sinner. He's a sinner just like Ezra was a sinner. Now, <coughs> when you think of Ezra, you don't, you don't think of a sinner, do you? You think of a saint. You think of a guy who's just always sold off to God. But Ezra was a sinner. Everybody's born in sin, no matter how spiritual they become. You can be the most spiritual person on the planet. You're still born in sin. You're still a sinner. Solomon says, there is no one who hasn't sinned. He should know, right? And Nehemiah is right in saying, I have sinned. Confession, very important element of prayer. Confession, like we saw with Ezra, we need to confess our sins. Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer we should confess the, the, the sin debt we've accumulated. Confess that. The fourth element in prayer, recitation, verses 8 and 9, recitation, reciting. Verse 8, Nehemiah says, remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I'll gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell, that's Jerusalem. <coughs> he says, I'll bring you back. Sorry for coughing into the microphone, but it's right here. So as you study Nehemiah, you're going to learn that Nehemiah is a guy who is acquainted with the scriptures. He knows the scriptures. His understanding of the majesty of God, where did he get that from? From the scriptures. His understanding of the history of the sin of Israel, where did that come from? From the scriptures. And in verses 8 and 9, he draws on passages from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and he to, to recite to the Lord. He recites back to the Lord his promises. That's something we should do. The first part of the promise is this. If Israel is unfaithful to you, you're going to scatter them. They did, God did that. They were unfaithful. He scattered them. <coughs> the second part of the promise is this. If they return. Return in the Old Testament is a, is a key word for repent. It, it means if they'll return back to God, if they'll repent to, of God. He's going to take them back. And Nehemiah is representing Israel on their behalf. Now, one element I think we don't utilize in prayer as we should is reciting the promises of God back to him, his own word, back to him. But the men and women of the Bible that prayed based their prayers on Scripture, like Mary, Luke chapter 1. What, read Luke chapter 1, Mary's prayer, Mary's praise. It's all filled with Scripture. George Mueller instructed people to meditate on the word and pray over what the word had said. The Puritans did the same thing, always teaching this. Read the word, meditate on the word, pray back to God what it says. And, and that's how better can you pray in a scriptural way than that? Learn to incorporate that concept in your prayers, as Nehemiah did. And then fifthly, supplication. Finally, supplication, verse 10. He says, Nehemiah says, They are your servants, your people, whom you redeem by your great power, by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, I beg you, you, may, that you may, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man, 
Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Supplication simply means to ask, to ask God for things. Nehemiah is asking the Lord to answer his prayer. He pleads with the Lord, saying, these are your people, these are your servants. These are the ones you redeemed. You redeemed them from Egypt. Please intervene on their behalf. Listen to my prayer. Listen to their prayer, the prayer of your servants. It's, just not, it's not just Nehemiah who's praying. There are others, apparently, who are praying. That word servant or servants, you've seen it several times in this chapter. You know, Israel, the people of Israel were called to be servants of God. They didn't always serve him, but they're, they're his chosen people. And Nehemiah appeals to the Lord on that basis. And there's, there's a word in verse 11 that catches my attention. Did you see it? <coughs> it's the word delight. He says, he talks about your servants who delight to revere your name. Sounds like a New Testament word, doesn't it? Delight. But it's an Old Testament word. There are people who took great delight in revering God's, literally fearing his name. They had the fear of the Lord. It's the same word used in Psalm 1 to speak of the person who delights in God's word. The fear of the Lord should be something that not, should not be a cumbersome, burdensome I, you know, obligation to us. It should be something that we should delight in because God is good. Even Christ, Psalm 40, verse 8, is a prophecy of the Messiah, and he says this, I delight to do your will, O God. Think about what he had to go through to do God's will. He delighted to do it. To walk with God, to know God, to live for him is not a burden but a delight. He finally asks the Lord, make me successful before this man. Show me compassion before this tender mercy, before this man. This man is Artaxerxes I, the ruler of the Persian Empire. That's why he asked for compassion, because when you're approaching a king in the ancient Near East, it's kind of a tricky business. You don't know what's going to happen. And so he prays for success and compassion compassion from God in front of the king. Well, once Nehemiah learned of the plight of the people, he he immediately becomes burdened for them. The first thing he does, before anything else, is seek the Lord on behalf of them. That is what the Lord wants us to see from this passage. He wants us to take the ministry of intercessory prayer as serious as anything else. I don't think we do that, really. But he wants us to see from this, I think, the ministry of intercessory prayer is so important. God's people need the prayer of who? God's people. need to pray for each other. It would not be a bad thing if we were known as the praying church. I think we should get a prayer partner, all of us. I think we should get together for time. Mike Barnabas said to us that last sermon he preached here before he went, went off, he said, you guys got to get together and have times of prayer. Pray for the needs of our church. Nehemiah, uh, rather Samuel, in 2 Samuel 12, 23, and I'll close with this, said this, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Let's be a praying church. I'm going to ask Matt. Matt, do you mind praying for us to close the service tonight?